I don't actually think that at some point your goal should be to understand your child more deeply, Mm. or at least it shouldn't be your primary goal. Your primary goal should be to make sure they feel felt. Got it. Got it. And that's different because the second goal of wanting to understand them is more about you than them. And at some level, it's like none of your business. Sometimes I think that to myself, like it's not your business to know why Georgia's doing what she's doing or what job she's chasing or what boy she likes or where she wants to live next year on campus. Like mind your own business. Like (laughs) you don't have to have an opinion about every single thing she does and just have faith in her that she'll figure it out for herself. Like she's a really, really bright girl and she's got a lot of advisors around her, friends and professors and counselors and it's none of your business what she wants to do. Like she's on her epic journey. Get out of the way. I'm Doug Bobst, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Kelly Corrigan. Kelly has written four New York Times bestselling memoirs in the last decade, earning her the title of the Poet Laureate of the Ordinary from the Huffington Post and the voice of a generation from O Magazine. She is also the host of the highly popular podcast, Kelly Corrigan Wonders, as well as the PBS show, Tell Me More, where she has interviewed people such as Jennifer Garner and James Corden. Kelly recently gave a commencement speech to the 2021 graduates of the Walker School, where she shared some life-changing wisdom on the importance of human connection. Here's a quote from her speech that I think you will appreciate to help set the tone for the convo today. Great lives are made up of a series of great days, and great days are made up of a series of great connections. Our discussion today centers around just that. We talk about the unbreakable bond that she had with her late father, Greeny, how it was built, why it was so special, and some tips on how it could be replicated. Kelly also shares why listening more and asking better questions is the secret sauce to building deeper connections and how you can apply it to specific types of relationships. We get into parenting and how to effectively communicate with your kids so that they feel safe, validated, and connected. Kelly and I also discuss how she has healed from many painful moments in her life and some wisdom her dad left behind that helps her get through tough times. Essentially, this chat is about love. It's about connection. It's about humility. It's about taking the focus off of yourself and putting it into others so that you can live a life full of joy, fulfillment, and happiness. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Kelly Corgan to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Kelly, welcome to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Hey, thanks a lot. It's nice to be here. I think we have people in common. I think you, you've you tracked down lots of points of connection between my dad and my brother and the whole lacrosse world. So nice to meet you, sort of. Yeah, it's nice to meet you as well. What's interesting is, you know, clearly you, you do some level of stalking for guests when you're interviewing them on a show or on a podcast. And I did that with you. And I, I started to, to read or listen to your book, Tell Me More. And I heard you describing your husband as, as somebody who loved the show, the wire. And I'm like, you know, I live in, I live in Baltimore. So that's my favorite show. And I, I knew there was going to be some connectivity there. 
And then I started to do more research on your family and, and your dad and, and saw that he was inducted into like the, the Maryland Hall of Fame for lacrosse and went to the University of Maryland and actually went to, to Loyola and grew up, I guess, in Govins, which isn't too far from me. And I was like, there's no, we, there's so many connections we have here and started to dig a little bit deeper. And then I realized your brother and I had like a hundred mutual friends. And I was, I know we're going to go all over the place today, but I was like, where am I going to start this conversation? I think there's no better place to start than there. So do you, I know you don't live here, but did you, do you make it down to this area a lot or just only for family events or how does that work? Uh, you know, about 13 years ago, my first book came out, The Middle Place, and it took me all over creation, both in the hardcover book tour, which was like living room to living room with friends and a lot of time in Baltimore with family, because I have just an enormous extended family on the Corrigan side. And then when it came out in paperback, the publishers really sent me on tour. And so being a a writer has totally circulated me around the country for a decade or more now in the best possible way, because I, I, I do really love my people and I, I don't want to let go of those ties to family and also to tons of friends. I went to university of Richmond. So there's a lot of Baltimore people that end up down there as spiders. And so, and also I worked in Baltimore for a year and a half. I worked at the United way on Charles street and went to happy hour every Friday on Water Street. Isn't it called Water Street? That little teeny tucked in street. Yeah, downtown. Yeah. Yep. And my ridiculous suits from the limited with my gigantic shoulder pads, <laughs> like I was David Byrne, and these skirts that like draped to the floor practically, and my Mia flats. That was me. Gosh, it's, it's such a such a small world, just in how everything works because. You know, as I was doing more research, I was like, "Wow!" I saw that you were an assistant uh, lacrosse coach for like, JV for the for the local high school, and I was almost curious to see if you still did that. And then I read, like, I think I was looking on your Twitter, and you tweeted something about like a speech you gave to one of the girls, I think, from the team, or, or even a speech to the team. I was like, "Oh, clearly she still does that." And then when I started to to look into like your relationship with your dad, because I know that was something that's been very meaningful for you, I, I feel like it's come out in many of your books, it's come out in your speeches, even your latest commencement speech, you reference going to Greeny to kind of figure out like, what would he do to, to have the biggest impact to the class that you were speaking to? And even your, your latest book, Hello World, which like references like one of the opening sayings that your dad would do when he got up in the morning. I was like, you know, I really want to dive into this. So the more research I did on your dad specifically to like why he was so special to you, because I believe clearly the, the father-daughter relationship is so important. We all know that. We all know that it sets the tone for every girl's relationship with uh, with a guy in their future, right? I mean, you can it can be you know good or bad. It can be great where if you have a great relationship, then typically in many cases the female hopefully will have great relationships with men because now they're kind of modeling the relationship that their dad displayed with them. And on the flip side, we hear a lot about daddy issues that in a way are created out of a traumatic relationship from the father daughter. So I wanted to really talk about that. And with that said, I feel like it's every father's dream to for their daughter to still have this deep sense of admiration for him years after he's passed and still reference him, still write about him. And it seems like you've clearly have this special bond that will never be broken 
which I think is, is rare today with a lot of the disconnect between parents and kids. So if you could just leave maybe a few words of wisdom for the audience on what about your dad made that relationship so special so that maybe there's a parent listening to this that wants to deepen the relationship with their kid, they can do so. He was one of the world's great question askers. And he was also one of the world's great listeners. Mm. Like he was actually more interested in listening than talking in what you might tell him than what he might tell you in your story than his story. Like he was completely whole unto himself. He did not need you to be wowed by him. He was really clearing the way for him to be wowed by you. And I don't know why that is. I mean, I, I remember watching, he's one of six kids. And when he went into the hall of fame, we had a fun family dinner the night before and his brothers and sisters were toasting him. And and they all kind of said like, he's my favorite and that he was just kind of gifted from a young age. And what a gift to have. Like if your gift is that you're a listener and that you just can't get enough of the people around you, that is better than being gifted in algebra, better than being gifted in speed, better than being gifted with beauty. I mean, that is the gift that never stops changing your life. And so it wasn't just me that had a special relationship with him. Like you could easily swap in either of my brothers and they would say the exact same thing. But I do agree with you. I do feel like the being well-loved by him for, you know, every day of my life made me have go into the world of dating with kind of high expectations. Like I knew what it felt like to have somebody think you were great just the way you are. And I knew what it felt like to be in a relationship with someone who wasn't trying to change you. And that's really hard to do as a parent because I feel like one of the things I reflect on all the time is how I could better just accept the kid in front of me instead of trying to edit them a little bit here and there from really stupid things like, you know, getting a haircut to really significant things like being more outgoing or, you know, asking more questions. Like every time you're making your helpful suggestions as a parent, you have to know that what's contained in that suggestion is the implication that you're not great just the way you are, like that you could use a little sprucing up. You could be a little bit better. And I just didn't have that with him. You know, like he just, he, his, predominant reaction to me and everything I did was this big booming laugh, which I took to mean like, I can't get over you. Good God. That's amazing. So, you know, like I do a cartwheel and he'd be like, lovey God. (laughs) And then I'd write a book and he'd say, lovey God, you know, and it just was all such a gas to him, but it wasn't, there wasn't an ounce of me that felt like I had to tap dance for his approval. Like he, he really, really loved me just the way I am. He thought I was so great just as I am before I did anything quote unquote great or interesting in the world when I was just a schlub in high school, getting B's, like getting suspended, getting 1090 on my SATs. Like it was never, he never withheld his great joy in being with me. Like I felt like he thought I was such great company. And that is such a wonderful thing to feel every day that someone is craving you. You know, he like didn't want to do errands without me. Mm -hmm. 
And I think my brothers would tell you the exact same thing. Like he wanted to coach every team they were on. He went to every game they played. He was hanging on every story they told, whether it's about a girlfriend or a funny first date or a job interview. Like he just was there for it. He was like tracking. He was holding all of us. And then, of course, he had that really magical ability. And everyone said it at a service that, you know, he made you feel like there's no one he'd rather be with. But he made everyone feel that way. I believe that if you think about if you talk to, to most kids, I would say, as a matter of fact, probably every kid, there's there's no amount of money that can buy their love other than you just being present for them and listening to them and making them feel that you love them no matter what point of life that they're at, whether they're struggling, whether they're succeeding, whether they're on a, a high point of their life or they're on a low point in their life. And I'm not a parent, but obviously, you know, through training and just through relationships and just through my own experience, I've, I've dealt with a lot of parents, a lot of parents along the way. And I think one of the things that's, that's challenging is for parents is how do you, how do you love your kid as they are while also doing the best that you can to help them succeed. Meaning if, if a kid is in a really dark place in their life, maybe they're struggling with addiction or they just went through a bad breakup and they're in this deep depression. How do you show them that you're still there for them in that same way without being too pushy to push them to get better? Yeah. I mean, you know, like fear undoes our best intentions. Yeah. So if you have a kid who's in that kind of spot where there's addiction, there's really hard mental health stuff, there's just no way you're going to be able to contain your fear and your fear is going to drive what comes out of your mouth and your posture and your body language. And, you know, I, I, I have a friend right now, his kid's going through a really, really hard time. And I just want to keep saying like, of course, I mean, of, of course you're, feeling like you can't say the right thing. I mean, you're scared to death and, and you can't think straight when you're scared. I mean, you literally like in a sort of neurophysiological way, like the, the wires are, are changed by fear. And so I, I think it's too much to ask, honestly, that you would get it a hundred percent right in those really low moments that are, like kind of riddled with un unfamiliar concerns. Like, you know, for most people, we, we are not trained to help talk to somebody about anxiety, depression, addiction. And, and so I, I guess the best you could do is listen to a lot of podcasts, read a lot of books, you know, inform yourself, continually inform yourself on what the best thinking is that's available. I mean, it's never been an easier time to self-educate. And so a big thing that I hear myself saying to my, my own kids over the years is I read this thing or I just listened to this podcast and there was a woman on there who's been doing research on self-esteem and teenage girls, you know, and I sort of, what I think I'm doing is, and it's not super conscious, but what I think is, is happening in that moment is I'm saying, one, this is all I can think about is you. And I'm trying to be as productive as possible by informing myself. And two, this is one way to solve problems. Like one way to solve problems is to go to the data and go to the information and try to be informed and stay informed. Another way is to stay in community with others. So 
I might say to them, you know, I was talking to another mom whose kid blank. And I, I hope what they're hearing is we still have agency, even in these really hard moments. There is information out there that could be helpful. There are other people walking this road that we could be in contact with, you and me together, or you alone, or me alone. And three, like, all I care about is you. I, ha- I, have, I don't even exist in this moment. I have no needs. I have no requirements. I just want to deliver for you to the extent that I can. I mean, it's not a lot of the problems that kids have at after 15, 16, 17 years old. I wonder sometimes what's realistic in terms of the way that we as parents can impact the progress and outcome. I just don't know. You know, I, I feel like when I think back on myself as an 18, 19, 20 year old, if my mother, I don't know what my mother could have said or done that would have changed my path, except, except in this very blanket way of feeling like there was a floor, like I could go home. I, like if I collapsed under the weight of my life, if I could not do it another day, I could go to 168 Wooded Lane and be taken in without question. And, and, and maybe that's like almost the extent of what you can do, but then not to go on and on, but, but then sometimes I wonder if it's like gaining weight and losing weight. Like it seems so easy to gain weight and so hard to lose weight. And sometimes I think about that with parenting. Like it seems so easy to do something to ruin it, but so hard to do something to save it. And so I think I I have to keep rolling back up to like the highest level, which is I am the safest place on earth for you and, and you are loved completely. And you, you can come here anytime. I will hold you forever. I will hold you to the day I die. Yeah. I think it's this tough dance between trying to parent and then also like coach them along the way of maybe, you know, not necessarily trying to fix them, but also like intertwining your experiences or your opinions into things, but also just, being that floor for them to hold space that they can feel seen and heard and, and them feeling like you're not trying to fix them. Because a lot of times, at least in my experience, if I'm going to somebody with a problem that I'm having and I'm I'm not feeling too confident about, about myself, and then a parent comes down either in judgment or in, you should do this. Like you, you feel inferior and you don't feel empowered where I feel like if you ask better questions, like you talk a lot about in, you start to, you know, get the information out of the, the the kid themselves, then they feel empowered and they're like, oh, like now I can see some light. And then you can kind of have that conversation alongside of them instead of at them. And that's where I think having empathy comes in. And I think empathy is a muscle. I don't think we just develop empathy all of a sudden. And I mean, maybe there's there's some cases, but most people, it's something that just has to be practiced day in and day out. So what are some of the best practices that, that you've used over the years to kind of, you know, strengthen your empathy muscle? We know one thing, one thing I, I said in that graduation speech online is that people want to feel they've been felt mm. and that it's sort of this driving need. And so sometimes when I'm asking them questions and saying, tell me more, what else go on? Like a big area of progress for me in the last couple of years. And I, I think my kids would back me up on this is that I talk way less and a funny um, way that that's 
become sort of locked in for me is that I am a podcaster. So I have this weekly podcast called Kelly Corrigan Wonders. And in the process of creating the podcast, I look at a lot of transcripts. And in the transcript, you can see my paragraph of, you know, contribution. And then you can see a couple of paragraphs from my guest. And sometimes when I look at the transcript, I think, oh, I'm talking too much. I can see it in black and white on the paper. Like my, you know, bubble of dialogue is way too big here. I should just ask the question and shut my mouth. And so sometimes when I'm talking to my kids or my husband, I picture the transcript and I think, just ask the question in as few words as possible. Like, tell me more. What else? Go on. And then shut your mouth. Because really, when you look at the transcript of a great parenting interaction, it should be like 2% parent and 98% kid. Like there's nothing that's more enabling than for a kid to solve his or her own problem. And there's no way they can do that if you're greedily jumping in with all your answers. Like, of course, you know more. You're really old and you've lived a lot longer. But that doesn't mean that you should be in there because the things you don't know are super salient. So you don't know what really happened with the guy. And you don't know about the weird look they got at lunch from that teacher. And you don't know about the small details that define an interaction. And yet you can convince yourself that you do know enough to really have the answer. And that's that kind of lack of humility and lack of wonder will get you in a whole lot of trouble time and time again, because then you're telling the kid, you should, why don't you just go tell her blah, 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 blah. And the kid's gone. I mean, they're sitting there maybe, but in their head, they're like, she totally doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. She just, you don't get it. And you don't, you, they're right. And we're wrong. We don't get it. We weren't there. We, they can't possibly convey to us enough detail for us to sort of have a masterful solution. They just can't. They're not telling us enough. And so the other thing that I like to be humble about is I don't know that much more than they already know and that they're already hearing from the world. Like a really dumb example is college admissions. Like a parent, a well-meaning parent who may have like some bubbling ambition for their children just has a ton of opinions about this school and that school and what essay and what, how they should list their extracurriculars and what they should put first and yada, yada, yada. If you think that your college bound kid doesn't know everything you're telling them, you're crazy. If you think your kid doesn't know everything there is to know about food and exercise and how to study, you're crazy. It's in the air. They can't get away from it. So all you want to do in your house is just be a refuge from all those people wagging their fingers at them and all the advertising and all the societal and cultural messages that are telling them, look like this, talk like this, write your application like this, go here, go there, go there. They know everything. We don't, you don't literally don't need to say a word. It's just, just, they're clobbered with it. You're right. And I think that the better questions that parents can ask to their kids, the deeper understanding they'll get on what it is to be inside their world, because there's this massive disconnect right now that's been created 
by social media. Like a lot of parents today, they didn't grow up with social media where in today's society, that's like the kid's world is social media, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, online is like where they're getting a lot of their information from. And it's just so much different than it was 30 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, 40 years ago, that I think it creates tension when, when parents think they, they know not everything, but they think they have this idea of what's really going on. And yet society has changed so much since they were kids. So I believe that if they can learn to ask the right questions to their kids and you have the kids open up, like you're saying, and then them listen, they'll be able to understand more like what's, what's going on inside of their heads and then and maybe deepen that relationship. And I know like one of the biggest things that, that you talked about in the commencement speech was the importance of asking questions. So what is your advice for people when they're looking to strengthen a relationship to make sure that they're asking great questions instead of just surface level ones like, how you doing? Or what are you doing today? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, I want to let you know this podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. If you're anything like me, you have a lot going on and it can be challenging at times to maintain effective nutritional habits and give your body the nutrients it needs to thrive. This is where Athletic Greens really helps me. Their all-in-one superfood powder is nutrient-packed and is included in my daily smoothie without fail or serves as a quick pick-me-up in between appointments and interviews. Personally, I have noticed that it helps with my digestion, energy, and immune system. One tasty scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. Plus, they are committed to helping people strengthen their immune systems. Athletic Greens is doubling down on supporting your immune system with everything going on in the world right now. This includes their offer for my listeners. They are offering my audience a free, free one-year supply of vitamin D, which many people are deficient in, yet is crucial for immune system support. And they are also giving away five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit my link today. You'll basically never have to buy vitamin D again. Simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Doug and join health experts, athletes, and health conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Doug and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. Now back to the show. Well, one thing I want to say about, let me just go back one, one notch and say, I don't actually think that at some point your goal should be to understand your child more deeply, or at least it shouldn't be your primary goal. Your primary goal should be to make sure they feel felt. Got it. Got it. And that's different because the second goal of wanting to understand them is more about you than them. And at some level, it's like none of your business. Sometimes I think that to myself, like it's not your business to know why Georgia's doing what she's doing or what job she's chasing or what boy she likes or where she wants to live next year on campus. Like mind your own business. Like (laughs) you don't have to have an opinion about every single thing she does and just have faith in her that she'll figure it out for herself. Like she's a really, really bright girl and she's got a lot of advisors around her friends and professors and counselors and, you know, and you're, you don't need to, it's none of your business what she wants to do. Like she's on her epic journey, get out of the way. 
And, and then in terms of great questions, I mean, even a really small edit I gave myself was instead of saying, how are you? I would say, how was your week? When I see someone, you know, out and about and it just yields a better answer. Like they, there's a pause because they say, uh, how was my week? You know, it was all right. It was all right. And then I say, what happened? And they say, you know, I got, I'm working on this new account and it's actually kind of interesting. And I, I like the guy and, and then that will take us somewhere more specific. And if you can just get past that kind of big headliney stuff, I'm good, I'm bad, good day, bad day, and into like real story. I mean, it's almost the same as like writing a good book. Like you, there's no good book that's all headlines. It's the best books are great stories with a ton of detail. And then you, you create the headline in your own mind years later when you say, what was that book about? Oh, it was about, and then you say it, the reader says it, not the writer. The writer just lays out a story in great detail. And then the reader has the joy of making something of it. And so it's the same when I'm talking to people as I think like, you know, tell me more like, who's your worst client? Who, what client drives you crazy? You know, but I'm, I'm kind of nutty with questions. Like I've re- I really, I was getting people, ready to answer. I was getting ready to half answer. And I was like, wait, am I going to, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, exactly. Or like, what's driving you crazy right now? A friend of mine, Shanti uh, uh, asked this great question, which is what are you working on right now? And it's so funny because the range of answers she gets is everything from like my marriage to sleeping better to some job related thing like a partnership or collaboration and people hear in the question whatever it is they need to talk about you know like they they answer to their own taste yeah and well and i also think when you ask these thought provoking questions that might you, somebody might say something you don't expect and i know you referenced a couple of these personal stories in your talk like one was with your husband and the person who was a, a prisoner of war, I believe in Madagascar for 45 days, right? There was that side of the coin. Then you were at some sort of event where there was this lady who was, who was dressed to the nines, I guess they would say. And, and you kind of thought of her in some way. And then she was there to celebrate the the donation of her kidney to her mom or something. And you just, you, then you build a deeper relationship. And and I think it just teaches us that when you ask questions and then you ask that follow-up question, you learn over time by working that muscle to not judge a book by its cover, right? Because then you're so used to asking these questions and getting to know somebody before casting that judgment that it becomes almost second nature before, you know, placing this idea of who this person is on them before, before actually getting to know them. And and something that really struck me in your speech that I think everybody needs to hear right now is this quote. And I wrote it down. It says, Great lives are made up of a series of great days and great days are made up of a series of great connections. Tell me more about that. Well, you know, when you think about how quickly we're unwittingly dismissing another person as interesting, and then you think about the cumulative loss that that represents in terms of just the joy of hearing a great story. And then you think about flip it and think about the cumulative joy that my father had because he really did think whoever was standing in front of him for sure had a story to tell. And he elicited a lot of them. And think about how enriching that is, how much that changes the actual texture of your daily life. 
when you know that the guy who opens the door at the Hearst building in New York for you every morning at 848, that he's got a kid who's in a wheelchair and you know the story and you know that the kids may be trying to do some physical therapy and get up and out, or they might be able to get him this prosthetic that could be really life-changing. And, you know, he knew those things. He knew those things about the people that he was brushing past in, in his daily life. And that is really enriching, really enriching. I mean, it changes the whole texture of your life. Then you take it up a notch to like a societal level. And you think about black and white, you think about Jewish and Christian, you think about, you know, men and women, you think about the blue collar and white collar, and you think about how little storytelling is passing between these groups and how much, how many assumptions are, we're letting ride and just how much joy we're passing up. Like the person, like we did this thing. I had this job for a while and every Friday we had this company meeting. It's a really small company, like 30 people. And I asked if we could start every meeting by one person in the company presenting another person in the company. And so we started doing it and it was crazy how much stuff every single person had. This person was, you know, grew up in Kosovo and there was a war and he was stabbed and he was in the hospital for 38 days and he finally escaped. And now he lives in the United States and he has four brothers and they all made it across the United States, but his parents still live there. And then the next person, this person was a horseback rider since they were four years old. And now their goal is to own a horse, but they ride every Saturday. And, you know, this person uh, plays guitar and he's been saving up and he just bought an electric guitar and he, his favorite song to play is Stairway to Heaven and just, just the stories that make people who they are. And we, were, we had worked together for many years, this group of people, and nobody knew anything about each other. Wow. So I, I, just think, I just think it's a mistake to not ask questions and then not ask the follow-up question because it's all in the follow-up question. Like the first question is just sort of knocking on the door. But those follow-up questions are where it really gets good. So after you've started to ask some good questions and then the even better follow-up question, you start to develop some rapport and a relationship with this person. What are some of your best practices or pieces of advice for the audience to build a deeper connection with the person that you're trying to deepen the relationship with? Well, I mean, I think it's one of those things. I mean, I think it's about letting it all hang out, but you have to kind of meter that just right because, you know, everyone has had that experience where they're chatting with someone and then all of a sudden the person starts, you know, doing that TMI thing where it's like, Mm -hmm. wow, okay. And then, and yet we all probably have had the experience where we're chatting with someone and suddenly it goes there, like you are in it. And the, you know, like it just happened with me where somebody's parent has dementia and we were in the middle of a super fun rehearsal dinner type event at a wedding, at a family wedding. And then we weren't, we were in this little cocoon of safety and grief and connection. And so I I think it takes like a, I think we should all be conscientiously tuning our radars so that we can read when a person wants that follow-up question and when they want to say it a little bit. Because you can imagine if, say, your father has terrible dementia, that 
many people mention it casually and then they drift away from it as quickly as possible. You know, they, they say, well, God bless them. I'm sure you're doing a great job. And then like, how are your kids? You know? And I, I know from having had cancer in my thirties and being in chemo that it, there's a special skill in knowing is today a day that I would like to talk about my fears is today a day I would like to say, I think I'm going to get this again. I, I think a seven centimeter by four centimeter tumor is like not normal and is way bigger than everyone else I've ever talked to about breast cancer. And I just think I'm really young and I have a feeling that this isn't going to be the last time I'm in chemo. Or is it today a day where I want to like have a Coors Light on the deck and, you know, play cards? So, but that takes a lack of interest in yourself. Like you have to actually be conscientiously reading the other. And you can't do that if at the same time you are, you have your own agenda. Like I've been learning this more and more, which is like, put down your agenda don't have needs in this interaction. You can have needs later today, maybe some other time in in the course of today, it will be your turn to be felt. But like right now, what you're doing, like sometimes when I'm visiting my mom, I think, don't have an agenda. Like, what does she want to eat for dinner? What does she want to watch? I don't care. I don't care what we eat. I don't care if we watch Jeopardy. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to have, I don't have needs in that scenario. I just, my need is, for her to have a great day, a better day because I'm here. And so like accepting the idea that maybe everybody's needs aren't going to be met in every interaction. And that means you too. Like that's a, that's been really helpful for me to think like this interaction isn't really about me and my needs. Like we, we don't all, everybody doesn't have to come away from this, you know, totally satisfied. My satisfaction can be in knowing that you got what you needed, that you're all set for today. And I think it all goes back to what we were talking about earlier in our conversation about parenting, where you need to kind of let go of these massive expectations and trying to fix the, the other person and just being open and just letting it all out there, like you said, and just being present, listening, letting the conversation or relationship go wherever it's, wherever it's intended to, and then just accepting it. And I heard you talk about in your speech that your, the message to the kids was that parenting is, is tough relationships are tough. Life is challenging. And just accepting that it's, that's part of the process is knowing that these things are going to be challenging at times. Like you're going to hit unexpected trials and tribulations. I know you've had them. You had it with, you know, your best friend, Liz, you had it with your father, obviously you had it with your own battle with cancer. I know there was also a point where you wanted to have more kids and then something happened where you had to get your ovaries removed. And then you just kept stacking these bad trials, these trials and tribulations kept stacking in your life. And I think if you hadn't learned to like walk that in a healthy way, I mean, maybe your life could have gone a different direction. So what were some of the things that helped you kind of heal from a lot of these painful moments and experiences that you've gone through throughout your life? Well, I mean, like everything is just like love gone wrong or like a, a, the flip side of love. Like the only reason why it's painful, it was so painful to lose my dad is because I loved him so much. Right. And the only reason why I was so scary to have breast cancer is because I like being alive. 
And so that's the cost of it. And the, and the only reason why parenting is hard is because you love these people so much, you know, and, and love makes you crazy. Love makes you want to clear out every obstacle. Love makes you want to hover. Love makes you want, you know, to lock them up inside on a Saturday night and not let them go out. I mean, you know, my kids got this great summer job this year. She just graduated from high school and she drives 25 minutes to and 25 minutes home and she's tired and it's hot. And every day I'm a little bit scared. You know, we just had a friend who lost his 19 year old because somebody leaned over to get a cell phone and it was over. Hmm. And so, I, yeah, it's only love. It's all love. It's just, it's the, the price of it. And so be it like, and then, then give me more. I'm like, I'll take it. I'll take all the, I'll take all the pain. I remember one day I was crying really hard about my dad and it had been like six months since he died. And you know, he's like 85 years old. Like it's kind of crazy how much I cried about it and how much I suffered it because he just had, he just couldn't ask for a better life and a beautiful death. But nonetheless, there I was. And then I thought, well, Kelly, God, if Georgia or Claire is 50 years old and they have to pull over while they're driving to let it out so that they don't get in an accident because it's so blinding the amount of tears I was having. It would just mean that we loved each other so much. And so, so be it. Yeah, perspective, I think, is everything in, in life. And I'm sure it helped you a lot with, with dealing with, with the death of, of your dad and even the, obviously the death of, of your friend Liz and just focusing on the moments of the great moments that you all had together. And then also like letting their, their memories kind of live on through your work, through doing stuff like this, where you can show people like what a true great relationship looks like between friends, between father and daughter, between parent and child. Is there anything, any pieces of advice that he gave you or quotes that he would say to you that you still have on repeat to this day to help you to help get you through? I don't know that I really have any quotes. I mean, hello world. Like that's just a way, that's just a worldview. You know, that's just like a, a mindset is like, greet it. Like here it is again, another day, go get it. Yeah. And, and I think it, it just seems that even after his passing, you've still had this, this deep bond with him where you've, it seems like you've still gone back into his mind and, and looked at like what he would say in certain situations. And even with this latest commencement speech, that's helped kind of get you through these, get you through times where like, things could be hard or things could be uncertain or things could be just, you know, not great. And, and with that said, I was just curious to see if there were things that he would say to you, because I know he was the one that like believed in you, even when you didn't believe in yourself, if when you're having these down days, if you're like looking to him and saying, all right, Greeny, like, what would you do in this moment? Or what would you say? I mean, you know, he didn't take things too seriously and he wasn't an enormously ambitious guy and he was very outward focused. I mean, I think there's an answer. I, I do think like a go-to answer for all grim moments is like turn the channel from yourself to others. Just flip it. And I do it in the night. I actually like visualize like turning a dial and, you know, in the first 
channel is just me, me and all my problems, me and all my worries, me and all my things that I can't quite get done the way I want to, et cetera, et cetera. And then I just reach up and I just turn the channel and there's Georgia and Claire and there's Edward and there's my friends, Jeff and Michelle, and there's my friend, Tammy, and there's my mom. And, you know, and, and there's the world. I mean, behind all that, behind that first ring of people, there's a whole world to get involved in. And I just think people who are focused out there, like my dad in a very simple way, but also like Melinda Gates in a, in a sort of global way, are happier. And I think they're safer from, you know, the slings and arrows. Mm-hmm. I think that like being smaller in your own frame is, is to your advantage. Like another thing I do is like, sometimes I picture taking off the roofs of all the houses in the world. And then I'm like flying around looking into people's homes and there's a couple getting engaged and there's a couple breaking up and there's a person dying and there's a baby being born and there's a person fighting and there's a person painting and there's a person playing their cello and there's a person, you know, cleaning up a plumbing accident and there's a person holding their dog after an injury. And, you know, like just remembering like, There are 8 billion people, 8 billion people, 8 billion people. Like everything in the world that can happen is happening right now. For sure. Uh, Yeah, I I totally agree with you. And, and I think just being able to be okay with where we're at and and accepting those moments in our life is, is kind of the the recipe for sustained happiness, but it's also very challenging because there's this this dance where we're looking to the past at things we could have done differently or mistakes that we've made or things we we sh- we know we should have done but did we did anyway and then we're looking into the future and saying okay like where am I going is this going to work out there's this deep level of uncertainty right now and I I can't see in front of me but it's it's hard to stay in the present it's something that I struggle with so much is staying in that present moment so and and I think one of the things that I've also heard that you say I, you talked about it in your book. By the way, you're a great storyteller. I want to I want to tell you that, and you're funny along the mm-hmm. way, which makes it even more enjoyable to listen to. But you were you were talking about your your health issues in Tell Me More, and and the struggle that you had with it that you weren't taking care of yourself, you weren't eating properly, you were smoking. How is your health now? Are, are you doing anything differently to to maybe move your body or, or eat better so that you can set yourself up to to live longer and feel better in the future? Like, what's that look like? Well, I definitely do not have an if-then cause and effect story going in my mind. I do not believe that if I exercise and eat right, I will live longer. I don't think that's the way it works. I mean, I, I think um, statistically it is, right? but I don't think that that could protect me as an individual or you as an individual. And we know this all the time. People, unexpected things happen sure. all the time. Nonetheless, I would not like to be riddled with regret if I were, you know, battling some other disease that maybe has correlations or causations to my own choices. So I definitely don't smoke. I do have one drink, one really strong, really good drink right around five o'clock, you know, four or five days a week with my husband that I love. I do not exercise a ton, but I do, I am getting uh, a lot of joy out of tennis and like playing games like that. And I'll, and I'll go for a walk with either of my kids anytime they want. Even if I am just about to get into bed and they want to go for a walk, I would hop out and do it. But I'm not, sadly, I am not 
super oriented toward fitness. And it's not in a, I don't reject it. I mean, I think it's spectacular. If you can do it, my husband's crazy fit. He bikes and swims and plays tennis and lifts weights. And he has a pull-up bar and one of the things, and I hear him like breathing it out. (laughs) You know, it's crazy, but, and and he looks fantastic and I enjoy him looking fantastic. So I don't, I wouldn't ever argue against it. I just, I just haven't ever put that into practice in the way that that I would like to. I mean, we, we used to go to a, tra- we had a trainer for a while and that was so fun. His name was Troy. And then his wife, Angie would do it with us. And I just felt like they cared about us so much. And it was so much fun. It was like the greatest luxury. And it was on Saturday mornings and we got up and out and they would plan for us. And they would, they knew exactly what we did the previous week and they were inching us toward things and they had little contests and it was great. And then they moved to Wisconsin and we, we didn't go looking for their replacement because it was such a tender relationship. Like I really, I cried when I said goodbye to them. I felt so cared for, but yeah, I I should probably get back into that kind of stuff. But yeah, I feel like I've never been busier in my life. I mean, I have a, we're filming 10 episodes of a interview talk show format for PBS in the fall. And then I do a podcast every single week and I just did a kid's book and I'm doing this joke book with this friend of mine that is so funny. So I'm up to my ears in it. So that's my excuse. Hey, I'm, I'm just, I'm just here to, to listen. That's all. I am. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you for the acceptance. I appreciate that. Yeah. And you, you are busy. You do have, have a lot going on and there's people that are listening to this. Obviously, if they're listening to a podcaster, I'm sure going to want to listen to your podcast, and learn more about it. So what Kelly Corrigan wanders. Like, what is it? I know it's obviously more or less a, an interview style podcast in a way, if you will, where you're asking different guests, thought provoking questions, learning more about them. Like what's the nature of the show? It's really kind of fun. Each month we try a different topic and we approach it four different ways with four different guests. So for instance, we did this series about human nature where I worked with this philosophy professor at Yale named Tamar Gendler. And I had this set of questions that I wanted to ask each person. And then I found some writer friends who would do it with me. So we had Margaret Atwood, the great Margaret Atwood, Handmaid's Tale, and then George Saunders, who is really one of my favorite people on planet earth. He's just so special. And he wrote Lincoln and the Bardo and a bunch of other books. And then Britt Bennett, who wrote The Vanishing Half and who was my fourth? Oh, Gia Tolentino. She writes for the New Yorker and she wrote a book called Trick Mirror. And so I took the same seven questions to all four of those people. And we tried to get at what is human nature, what is cult versus what is culturally defined versus what is the individual. Another one we did a little series on what conventional wisdom would be, would we be wise to reject? And so each week we took on a different little adage, like everything happens for a reason or never give up or what you don't know can't hurt you. And we sort of deconstructed them and said, are we sure you should never give up? Like sometimes you should definitely give up. Like let's not get too whipped up about never giving up. So that was another one. Another one was the series I did with Anna Quinlan and Anna Sale, who has the death, sex and money podcast. And we each week took on a different topic around family life, like misunderstandings was one of them. Regret was another one. And we each brought a reading and we would read our short reading and then talk and then do another reading, talk, do the the third reading. And that was a super fun series. So it's like that. And the next series 
that we're doing is on love stories and they're really good. I mean, two of them, I cried like a baby when we, when we were recording, cause they were so special. They're really unusual love stories. Like this first one is this woman who fell in love while she was, she has a, a disorder that's affected her vocal cords and she was unable to speak while she was falling in love with this guy who became her husband. And it's just these beautiful stories. And I, I found them on medium. And then the next series is called mind the gap. And it's four ways that we're very different from the previous generation and from the next generation. And then this fall, we're doing a big 10 part series on belief. Like what do we believe and why do we believe it? And how does it serve us or not serve us? So what made you want to do the show in, in this format? Cause I know like a lot of shows, obviously now it's just like this, it's just interviews and you just kind of curate different questions or ideas around each guest and, and yours, it seems like it's pretty straightforward standard and you have like a vision, like a long-term vision of the different topics you want to cover. And then you pick different experts and guests along that. Was there a gap that you saw or is just something that you've always wanted to do? I mean, I pretty much just followed my own curiosity. You know, there are 2.2 million podcasts. <laughs> and so, you know, everybody and their cousin has one. Yeah. And I felt like I should, in this scenario, I should do whatever I want because it doesn't matter that much because there are just so damn many of them. And I should just follow my curiosity wherever it leads. The other thing is that I, my podcast is played on, I think 16, up to 16 different NPR stations in, in any given week. And so that required a certain um, kind of discourse that I really wanted to maintain. And the third thing is that I can learn a lot podcasting. Like I just, right before we got on, I was on with this woman named Sonali who is an econ professor from Cambridge and Columbia, whose whole family, her parents, her children, and her husband were swept away in the tsunami. And she was not, somehow she grabbed a branch and she survived. And so talking to somebody who is hyper-educated, is a great presenter of ideas, who has lived through something that I, I can't think of anything comparable that I'm aware of, than losing five people and in, in a one minute, in a moment by a wave. I, every time I hang up on a conversation like that, I think this is the best job I could ever have. Yeah. Because I think also it's at least, at least for me, and I could be completely wrong with other people, but it's during the times where you need to hear something like that. Most where you hear that thing, it's during the times where you're not having a great day or, you're complaining about something that might be completely irrelevant or unimportant to most. I mean, even though it matters to you, but then you hear a story like that and like, wow, like mm -hmm. I'm okay. Like things are going to be okay. And it, and it shifts your perspective. And that's why like you were, you were talking about like being of service to other people. That's why when, when people are having a rough day, like one of the greatest things they can do is call somebody and check on them or help somebody out or go buy Absolutely. somebody a coffee at Starbucks because you're never going to regret doing that. Right. 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 Absolutely. It's such an easy go-to, you know, you should have Booker on the podcast because he, he's really wise about this kind of stuff too. And he, he's always coming up with things like that, where it's like, I know what to do. Call three people. Yeah. I mean, cause I think when people can have 
different tactics in those situations, it, it helps. Although I, I, what I've, what I found in my own experience, when you're in the thick of it and you're in that fight or flight, like you're not thinking logically anyway, because you, you know, we talked about like your, your frontal lobe, whatever the part of the brain is that's responsible for decision-making and, and thinking cognitively kind of shuts down when you're in fear or, or stress. So, but I think with that said, I think having the awareness around what could potentially work would, would definitely be helpful. And, and with that said, I guess, as we kind of come to the end of our conversation, you've got a lot going on. You've got this thing with PBS, you have your podcast, you're obviously a speaker, you've written uh, multiple New York, New York times, bestselling books. You're writing another book, another joke book, and you just came out with a children's book. Like, what are you excited about? Like going forward, like after this, like what's net, what's coming up for you say at the end of 2021 or beginning of 2022 that you're super fired up about. We are moving. I have lived in California for 29 years since I was 25 years old and we sold our house last Tuesday and we're moving to Montana and New York city. So we are, uh, and I'm becoming an empty nester. We take Claire to UVA on August 18th for her first year there. And our other daughter, Georgia is at Georgetown. So everybody's going to be on the East coast. And then we're going to have this very small townhouse in Bozeman where we can be close to nature and where I can do some fun stuff in town with some really neat creative people. So I, there's a lot to look forward to. I'm also scared to death. You know, I, I haven't lived in real weather in 29 years. Like the, the, the range of weather and where I live in California near Oakland is like 70 to 84 like year round. So I don't even know what I'm, what I've signed up for here in terms of heat, bugs, snow, ice. It could be just the rudest awakening, (laughs) or I may discover that like, that's, I am more tolerant of discomfort than I recalled. And, you know, we're leaving a lot of people uh, that we really love, but I think most of the people that, you know, we feel super close to, we'll be able to keep up with because they travel and we travel and, and, you know, I've all these years, I'm, some of my best friends are still my high school friends and I haven't lived in the same on the same coast with them in 30 years. And I still feel totally current and like I'm in this deep relationship. So hopefully this is going to be a good decision, but talk to me in a year because I could be looking for a new house and right down the street from this house that I'm sitting in now that I just sold. It's pretty cool. Like you're going to two polar opposite places. You're going to Montana and then you're going to New York city. So I can imagine it'll be a good blend of of both like the hustle and bustle of New York and then Montana where you're kind of in the wilderness a little bit, so to speak. Yeah. We'll see how it works. This should be real interesting. Awesome. Well, this conversation has been phenomenal. I think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of your wisdom, just your own vulnerability and sharing so openly just about your journey, even your intimate relationships with, with family and, and other things. So where can people find out more about you if they want to connect with you, check out your podcast, buy your books, or even just read more like about your story and that sort of thing? Well, I have a website where everything lives. It's called kellycorrigan.com. And then I, I post that my favorite social media is Instagram and I post there quite a lot and it's just at Kelly Corrigan. Cool. I will make sure to uh, add all that stuff and the links to the show notes so that people can check you out and people that are listening to this, you're not only going to want to listen to this episode, you're going to want to check out Kelly, check out her books, check out her Instagram page, check out the commencement speech she gave. It is life-changing and you're going to get a lot out of that. And what I want you to do 
is if you happen to listen to that commencement speech, take a screenshot, tag myself and tag Kelly. Cause we'd love to hear feedback. We'd love to hear what you got out of the speech in this episode. Cause we love just hearing that the, the show's helping people So tag Kelly tag myself. And we look forward to hearing from you. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the adversity advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Doug.